So this is the geopolitical dimension of this, where this weakens the United States at our core while implicitly strengthening our geopolitical foes abroad because it gets it undercutting the greatest moral strength of the United States, the greatest geopolitical strength of the United States. That's not our nuclear arsenal. It is our standing, our moral standing on the global stage. And by relentlessly criticizing the United States for racial injustice or contributing to climate change, but without saying a peep about the actual behaviors and true atrocities in places like China, global corporations then end up contributing to this false moral equivalence between the U.S. and China, which I think is, is probably the defining threat that we face geopolitically over the next 10 years. It's not just a military threat. It's a threat of eroding our credibility and our standing to be able to stand for our values without apology on the global stage. So, so when I say it's everywhere, I really mean the effects of it are everywhere, from our economy to our culture to our geopolitics to eventually our ability to even stand up on the global stage against countries like China. And welcome back to The Narrative. This is Center for Christian Virtue President Aaron Baer, here with my co-host and our policy director at CCV, David Mahan. We're on volume four of The Narrative, uh, diving into the issue of woke capitalism. You know, here on The Narrative, we unpack the toughest issues of the day uh, to, to really understand what's the driving forces behind these big debates, these big topics. Uh, and we just have had so much fun with these last three volumes uh, diving into issues like race, uh, diving into uh, issues like Marxism. Um, and now we're really going to be diving into this issue of woke capitalism. And honestly, uh, the timing couldn't be better as we're wrapping up Pride Month and seeing every corporate, uh, every corporation uh, across the country do everything to can- they can to show how woke they are, doing their virtue signaling thing. Uh, and we're having that right now, especially, again, uh, after the, the Roe decision coming down. Uh, my, my favorite uh, thing that I've been seeing is all these companies that are in states that still have, you know, legalized abortion saying they're going to pay for their employees to leave states uh, that that are banning abortion. Like Ohio, we're going to be banning abortion here completely. Our heartbeat bill is in effect, but we're going to be banning abortion completely by the end of the year. Uh, and they're sending out these statements saying they're going to help our employees leave states that, that uh, don't have legalized abortion when all of their states, their employees are in these states that have uh, abortion policies, policies anyway. Um, we're going to dive into this whole concept of woke capitalism, unpack it, uh, explain what's going on. I think for a lot of folks, they don't really realize how corrupt uh, corporate America and chambers of commerce um, have become over the last uh, five to 10 years. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we started the Christian Business Partnership here at CCV. We'll tell you more about that as, as time goes on and what we're working on to address uh, the issue. Um, but really, uh, as we uh, dive into this topic, that I'm so thrilled to have our, our first guest we're going to have with us later in the episode, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, what I love about Vivek, uh, he, he's not a believer. He's not a Christian. Uh, he is, uh, But he is somebody who has uh, lived in the upper echelons of corporate America, been incredibly successful, uh, and has seen uh, the poison and rot uh, of what woke capitalism has done to corporate America. Uh, and so, uh, honestly, I feel like we could have him on for every volume, uh, every episode in this volume, uh, because he just understands this issue so well. Uh, but he's going to help us get it kicked off to explain the issue, uh, explain really how serious this is, how dire it is for our nation to address this uh, and, and get us going in the right direction. Uh, but, David, uh, before we get into that, we got to talk about the news of the day. Uh, and, and there's nothing bigger uh, than the reality that, you know, this, this is our first episode of the narrative in a post-Roe America, 
this is, uh, you know, in, in we, we had our first staff meeting uh, Monday, our staff meeting, and I said, you know, in the 39-year history of CCV, this is the first time we're having a staff meeting where Roe is not the law of the land. You know, you, I know you and your wife have been working in the pro-life movement for, for years, for many, many years, many Many, <laughs> many years, All right, man. Uh, hey. <laughs> many years. Uh, but when you saw the decision come down, what was the first thing that came to it, your mind? It was one of those moments where you, you know, I, I'll never forget where I was at when <laughs> blank happened. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I was in Grand Rapids all week. Uh, I, I caught the plane early, been running since four in the morning and um, dropped my wife off at uh, at her pregnancy center downtown. And I was heading home. You know, I had my bag, and I was heading home, and then I get the text. My phone blows up. You know, Rose been overturned, decision dropped. Um, I about crashed. I, you know, <laughs> trying to turn around and get back to my wife's office uh, because I knew I had a full day at work. I, I, you know, I pulled my suit out of the bag, and it was wrinkled, and I had to get over to the state house to do a, a press conference. And it didn't hit me, man, until I'm about to get up to the mic at the state house. And everybody's all in the details of Roe v. Wade and what it means and, and going forward. And I just said, you know, praise God, you know, for all that he has done. I'm, I'm just grateful, you know, for, for 50 years of answer prayer, grateful. Uh, I just think of my wife and I's personal testimony of, of all of the, ba- I know we had 60 million babies lost, but all of the testimonies over those 50 years of all the babies that were saved by divine intervention. Yeah. Uh, literally like, like my Jessica and um, just, I, I'm overwhelmed and I'm just yeah. sitting here. I mean, if you'd ever told me that um, we would be doing a podcast around the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I, first of all, I don't believe much you say anyway, but I definitely <laughs> wouldn't believe that. Hey, you wouldn't have known what a podcast was before you started. Hearing it. No, but uh, you know, the, I, I got to say that the, what it made me think of, even, even as you're talking, you know, I, I really started my work in the pro-life movement uh, in Arizona at Center for Arizona Policy. Um, and, you know, was so basically CCB's sister organization in Arizona and, you know, got to just meet phenomenal people there doing amazing pro-life work that just goes unsung, right? Like every day praying outside abortion clinics, every day, like the one-on-one, you know, like uh, in-depth work of helping people in in difficult situations, helping low-income people with not a lot of resources and not a lot of education uh, navigate uh, the, the, the process of, of social service, of delivering a child and raising a child and and all of, all of those things that go into it and, and just pray, they, they were praying every day for an end to this. And, and then I leave Arizona where that was my whole world of the pro-life movement, and I come to Ohio six years ago, and I meet all these people doing the exact same thing, unsung, un, just uh, unknown. You know what I mean? It, it, it is unknown to anybody except for God who sees the amazing work they do, have done. And I, I just think about the the crowns and glory in heaven these people are going to get That's for right. what they've done to, to pull babies and their mothers uh, back from just this this deadly scourge that that is abortion, um, 
to, to me, this month, I mean, the second thing I think that, yeah. that I, I'm so excited about is that the month of June is dedicated to them kind of now. Right, right? exactly. Like we yeah, took it away right. from the whole pride thing. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, but now, you know, my wifey's month, you know. Right. She, <laughs> well, I, I, so, uh, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, I'm sure. But I, 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 did, I did send the, the text off to some friends and I said, hey, so does this mean that we can move the March for Life out of January and into June, oh, so we don't all have to go to Jan- we don't have to go to Washington in January when it's freezing cold. I'm just saying, right? It, it's a it would be nice, but it, I understand not. We took June back, y'all. Exactly, that's, right? that's all I care. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. No, I, I, th- there's just so much, uh, and, and I'll say we've already talked about for for the next volume, uh, dive in deeper into this this conversation altogether. Um, but I, I I do just think. Um, I think there's a few things as we look, as we really start looking at what this decision means for our country. You know, the one thing I think we have to be really careful of first and foremost is we shouldn't be saying things like, and I, again, this is not directly critical uh, of people who have said these because, you know, a lot of folks are just kind of reacting right, right now. But the idea that now the real work begins, now that the real work has been going on for mm-hmm. 50 years. Like I think about what, what your wife has done, what you were doing with sexual risk avoidance education in public schools for all these. The real work has been happening for for decades. And the reality is we have built the infrastructure to be there for women. Ready to go. That, that are like, th- th- this is not all now that now we've got to start serving women. That That's that's the other thing that I, I really, my wife, uh, Maria, who, who works for the, the Colson Center, um, ha- has been really good about this and, and has, has been really strong in, in the way she talks about this is that I, I've heard a few pastors and a few folks make comments like, well, now we really have to be there to, to help the women uh, who abortion is no longer an option for. And again, I appreciate the sentiment there, right? We, we need to serve women with crisis pregnancies. We have been, we need to continue that, all that by all means. But that is the quintessential example. And this, this is, to me, is the big work that actually has to get done now. Um, that is accepting a, a, a lie based on the premise of abortion. We, I, we said this, you know, uh, Saturday night. What, what we had done is we had keyed up to be able to do a, because we saw the leaked opinion uh, at CCV and everybody saw it, we said, hey, we want to be ready to have a big celebration and praise God um, when, when the decision comes down. And so we had planned a big worship night, and we did it over at Jersey Church in New Albany. Um, I probably had 200, 250 people there. It was a great time um, where we just got to just pause for a moment and just say, thank you, Jesus, for for getting us here. Um, But my message that night was about how how deeply abortion has saturated our culture, way more than just, you know, the, the killing of unborn children. And when I hear people say things like, well, now we have to help women uh, who have to carry these, you know, that, that, that abortion is no longer an option for, I, I what what they're doing there is they're accepting the premise of abortion. Yeah, that that was a good option. That that was a good option in the first place, as opposed to, no, you know, in no context was abortion ever helpful. Abortion never helped a single woman. It, it she, when, when you have an abortion, you are creating violence against yourself and a mother creating violence against her own child. Right. That's, that is bad for her soul. That's bad for her body. That's bad for everything. Uh, bad, certainly bad for the child. Um, and so we, we need to be careful about how we talk about um, the, the pre-Dobbs uh, world uh, that, w- that we used to live in and, 
and not accept the premises of abortion. Now, there's so much more that this goes into, you know, that, that we have to uh, deal with, um, and we need to be in a position to do it. But it's things like that that I, I, I as we begin to talk about how do we build this post-Roe world, um, that I really think we need to think through, you know? Yeah. yeah it, you know, I was talking to a pastor the other day, uh, yesterday, and um, he was kind of on that line and, and just really excited, you know, and again, this is not, you yeah. know, we're not, we're not shaming anybody, you know, we, we kind of repeat talking points, right? you know, and a lot of folks just aren't aware, and this is a pastor, and I'm like, pastor, th- this is something we've been doing, mm-hmm. and of all of the almost 200 pregnancy centers in the state of Ohio, most of those folks are from the body of Christ, right? Exactly. right? This is a win, this is, we are ready, right. this is... This is the whole world um, acknowledging the great work, the Earn While You Learn programs. Thank you for all of y'all that is doing Earn While You Learn in the community and giving women points for learning about different, you know, life skills as it relates yeah. to parenting. And, and thank you for all the hotline workers and, um, and everybody who's weeping and crying, talking about different options with women. It just, you know, you all have done it and are continuing to do it and will continue to do it. And I just want to say thank you personally. No, a- a- amen. And that's the, like... The the reality is um, the the whole narrative that um, yeah the the, uh, the pro life community has only been pro you know up to pro birth you know when we're not pro life only someone who's not been around the pro life community could say something so yeah. ignorant um, you know from from the the get go this I think about Peggy Hartshorn who founded oh, yeah. Harpy International and and who's on our board at CCV like. Tell Peggy Hartshorn she's only pro life and not pro. You know, she's only pro birth and not pro life. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it is just a lie. She helped my wife and I. Yeah, with, exactly. With uh, material aid. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's just nonsensical. Um, the other thing, though, and this was the the message that the, the real heart of the message we delivered um, Saturday night, and this is something that we're going to be thinking through a lot at CCV uh, in, in the the years going forward is, you know, uh, you don't often realize when you're living through history, right? I I, I I think COVID's a great example of it, right? When COVID first hit, it was like, oh, wow, this is pretty crazy. Um, and then you don't realize, oh, wow, no, we're always going to remember 2020. That, that was a historic moment, right? Uh, it took me a while. I remember even as a kid uh, when, when 9-11 happened, right? Um, that that to, to realize, oh, wow, no, this is a, a world-changing moment. moment. It, it took a, a while for us to get there, right? Um, you know, this is a pretty easy one, though, to, to like, in the moment to realize, oh, we're living history right yeah. now. This I, is I've never lived in a world yeah. where Roe wasn't the law of the land. No, exactly. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it is, this is something that for generations, people, history books are going to talk about this. Um, and when I was thinking through that and thinking about what that means, you know, I, I began to think about other times where we have had major shifts in uh, American history that restored justice and restored humanity, um, and and how the country responded. and And I, th- it made me think of uh, the Civil War, uh, and and the Emancipation Proclamation, and the freeing of slaves, um, and Reconstruction in particular, right? And so. You know, you, you look at the Thirteenth Amendment, you look at the Civil War, you look at these these major moves to that ultimately uh, won freedom for 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 slaves in our nation, um, and you know, slavery was a scourge on our nation, and we needed to do the big important public policy shift of banning slavery, of yeah. ending 
the owning of another person made in the image of God, uh, owning, the, uh, especially ending the African slave trade. Um, and so we did that. But, you know, most historians and anyone honest would say reconstruction, though, afterwards failed. Mm. We didn't deal with the deeper heart issues. And it's why it took 100 years for after we, we ended slavery to pass civil rights and why even today we're still dealing with racial strife. It's, you know, that was the first volume of this, this episode. We're still whether you agree or not with a lot of the premises around the racial conversation in America, which I don't. The reality is there is racial strife still in our nation, and that is the fruit of not dealing with Reconstruction well. And so when we were talking uh, Saturday night, I said that we are, we're entering our second Reconstruction in America. We really need to make that available, by the way, at some point. It's, it's the, 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 the concept of, so we've dealt with the main scourge of uh, the, the sin, the policy sin of allowing for children to be aborted, in, in our state at least, because we have things like heartbeat, we're going to pass life at conception. We've overturned Roe. But we need to deal with the deeper issue of it. If we don't deal with the deeper issue of why we thought it was okay for a mother to kill her child, why we think it's okay to take the life of, of, a, of an innocent one who's made in the image of God, why we look at children as a curse and not a blessing, if we don't deal with that underlying, if we don't reconstruct that mindset, that mindset mm-hmm. it, it, it's, we're going to find ourselves back in, in a, a, a pre-Dobbs world. Um, and that for us at CCV, it, it, there's so much that goes into that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a lot harder than getting a Supreme Court decision overturned. And that took 49 years, right? Um, and, and so that's a conversation that I'm, I'm looking forward to having. That's something I'm looking forward to praying through. Um, and, and I think is, is really important for us to, 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 to dive into. Um, but with that, we, we could go on and on about, about the, the Dobbs case, um, about the amazing work that's been done. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting here, uh, with the, a copy of the Columbus dispatch that has us on the cover of it at CCV, um, talking about the, the long, road it took to overturn not just overturn road but get the heartbeat bill passed and so many amazing people who were, were a part of that here in ohio that injunction being lifted like, exactly so quickly right away yeah. you know there, there's just so much going on and and i'm sure even next week we'll talk more about uh, what's happening because because there's there's news just happening all the time uh, on this but we want to take a quick break here uh because we're going to start our interview with vivek uh in just a minute don't go anywhere we'll be right back here on the narrative Christian business owners today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. As corporate America and chambers of commerce fall prey to woke capitalism, Christians in the marketplace need an advocate to protect their First Amendment freedoms. As Ohio's only Christian chamber of commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to ccv.org slash cbp. That's ccv.org slash cbp. And welcome back to The Narrative. This is CCV President Aaron Bear here with my co-host David Mahan. And we've got a very special guest uh, actually in the building with us today, not, not on Zoom, which is... <laughs> Uh, again, a, a gift that just keeps on giving right now that we can be in person once again. 
Uh, but uh, my, my friend Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who's here to talk with us about our, our new volume, volume four, Woke Capitalism. And as we were talking about doing this episode, as we're, you know, we're ending Pride Month and we see corporate America going crazy after the Roe decision, uh, we thought this was the right time to dive into this issue, dive into what we see happening in corporate America, what we see happening in the chambers of commerce, how it's impacting politics, how it's impacting uh, culture at large. And Vivek is the, the the right guy to kick off this volume, especially uh, both his experience in corporate America, but also writing the book Woke Inc. Uh, you'll catch him on CNBC. You were just on CNBC today, right? Yeah, Vivek? I'm, I'm going to be on tomorrow, CNBC. On, I'm on you know, frequently. Yeah, all, uh, all the time yeah. and, and Fox uh, and, and all. You, you'll catch him all over the place uh, speaking on this issue. Uh, and also, you just started a new company, which we'll talk about, Strive, um, that's, that's directly both looking to serve your clients, but also deal with this issue broadly of, of Woke Inc. So uh, Vivek, for, for those folks who haven't uh, caught up with you, oh, and you have a new book coming out, I should say too, Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. Vivek, just for folks to, to, to know more about you, how did you get into this whole conversation? What brought you into really getting so concerned about the issue of woke capitalism and sort of the, the hard shift left uh, in corporate America today? Sort of accidentally is the answer. I kind of stumbled into it. So uh, my, my background, you know this, Aaron, is I was a biotech CEO for seven years. I founded a biotech company, built it up uh, from scratch, and I had the privilege of working on medicines that improved people's lives, and several of them are FDA-approved products today. That was a shining spot in my career, having been a science guy before I'd studied molecular biology as an undergrad. I thought that was going to be my, my track. Spent seven years as a biotech investor that led me to the doorstep of starting this biotech company. So that was my world. But something started happening in the late 2010s, 2018, 2019, where there was an expectation of people who led companies. And you know, my company thankfully enjoyed some success. It was a multi-billion dollar company, et cetera. People would start calling on me to sign group statements on public policies that had nothing to do with our business. And I remember I was I was criticized in one case for failing to sign a biotech industry statement for uh, condemning President Trump's executive order on immigration. And, and the funny thing was, <laughs> my reason for wanting to sign it, not wanting to sign it or not even responding to it is I was so busy building the company, I didn't even know what the executive <laughs> order on immigration was. So you could probably blame me for yeah. not being up to speed on the news, but I was neck deep in in trying to develop drugs. Right. I said, look, I, I, have, I don't know the first thing about this executive order. No way I'm gonna be signing some group statement that 100 other people signed. That was the first time where I started to get a taste of this, but that was early. And it just started a crescendo more and more companies around me declaring that they were going to serve their stakeholders rather than shareholders, change their executive compensation programs to reward executives based on how well they advanced a particular social agenda, not just how well they made products to sell to their customers to serve their ultimate owners. And, and I, I began to grow curious about it, right? And so I, I didn't think I was going to leave this track of developing medicines, but I did write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that called out one of the ways that I saw this as a threat, which was not just the old Milton Friedman threat that it was going to make companies less efficient. By the way, I did worry about that too. But my real concern was, was actually in some ways the opposite. It was that if people like me, Harvard and Yale educated, founding multi-billion dollar companies and people even more successful than that, we're going to get together behind a closed door room, effectively, and decide what the right answers were to the most important and pressing questions a society had to grapple with, how to fight racial injustice, how and whether to tackle climate change, whatever it is, 
that was actually a violation of the principle of a democracy where everyone's voice and vote was supposed to count equally. And that's what I put on the pages of the Wall Street Journal. That was supposed to be a one and done. And then that led to this journey where an agent approached me and said, look, this is, you know, it generated some waves, some controversy. You need to write a book on this. So, you know, that might be kind of fun. I wrote, I decided as I got into the project of writing the book, what I quickly discovered is I was not going to be free to speak out about those subjects as a citizen. I wasn't using my company to do it anyway, but even as a private citizen, I wasn't going to be free to do it without that having an adverse impact on my company. I can give you some stories about what taught me that lesson, uh, but suffice to say, I, I wrote an article that, that had some backlash that, that resulted in a couple advisors to the company resigning. This was a wake-up call to me that I had to make a decision of whether I was going to actually be a citizen and speak in an uninhibited way about what I thought were some of the most important issues of our time, the relationship between government and business, or was I going to run that through the filter of corporate self-interest? And I decided to, to take the, the former path. I stepped down as CEO, spent the last year and a half, I really enjoyed it, traveling the country without an agenda, speaking out about what I thought was a toxic brew of politics and business. And at the end of that, you know, that's what led me to the doorstep of founding this new firm. But I had no idea this was where it was heading or was it going to head to, I had no idea where it was heading. I really just wanted to, to help solve the problem first by shining a spotlight on it. And that's what I did through the couple of books that I wrote. So, so the question of Vivek is, you know, you, you were working in a very niche industry in a, 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 a very high capacity way, high, high leverage way. How, how big is this problem actually, though? You know, again, from your perspective, how, how, how deep is the, the, the roots of this uh, across corporate America today? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to be, you know, some sort of histrionic alarmist here. It is systemic. It is systemic. This is, this is everywhere you look. You can't see a product or a message that's delivered to you without being commingled with someone else's social agenda. And it starts with the shareholders, okay? The, the, the biggest shareholders in the world are the large asset managers in the United States. BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. I mean, these three firms manage over $20 trillion. That's already more than the GDP of the United States. But they're part of this, this broader network. They call it the Climate 100 Network. That it's Climate Action 100 Plus Network. It's exactly what it's called. I was on a group call earlier today with a representative from Goldman Sachs and, and a couple of other firms that were signatories of this, of, of, that are part of this network. It's a dues-paying network of global asset managers that manage together over $60 trillion. That's more than 3x the GDP of the United States, representing over 50% of the global assets under management that all sign on to a monolithic agenda that they advance in all of the public companies' boardrooms across the United States, across the Western world as we know it. And to me, that is a that has a trickle-down effect on our culture, which takes the true diversity of perspectives that we actually have in our democratic society and reduces it to one monolithic, politicized perspective that's represented in the boardroom of every one of these companies, and then those companies end up dancing to that tune. It's a one-sided political agenda using the capital of everyday American citizens in ways that those citizens would not approve of if they actually knew what was going on, but they don't. And it's everywhere and it's invisible from the flags you see, not the American flags, but right. this month, the pride flags right. on the front of a, a business's doorstep to signal its virtue, to the messages that you see on the advertisements that you watch on television, to the places where your own money goes as a shareholder of these companies 
to donating to groups like BLM, to to La Raza, to the to the National Urban League, that you have very little visibility into. But it's actually everywhere you look, it's become so normalized that it doesn't even stand out anymore. You've just become acclimated to accepting that as the status quo. And one of the things I refuse to do is to accept that silently. We will not go quietly into the night. (laughs) I think it will ultimately bring a, take a diverse voice, if you will, at the table to help change the tides back to where most everyday citizens want to see our corporate tide go, which is actually to to depoliticize the private sector, which is the mission that I'm on. So how do you, uh, how how does this practically for, for, for the, the, the everyday consumer, uh, for the everyday individual that has a 401k, uh, through their employer or, uh, you know, has a college fund set up for their kids, an investment account, that kind of thing. Maybe they have their own investment accounts. That, how, does, how does this uh, political agenda, if you will, get driven? What's practically, what are they doing? You, you mentioned, you know, putting flags up, all that kind of stuff, but practically what are they doing to leverage and drive their political so, perspective? And maybe yeah. if we could even just define what woke capitalism is mm-hmm. for some of our listeners. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, the way I define woke capitalism, it goes by stakeholder capitalism in, in elite circles, is it's the idea that businesses have a responsibility to not just develop products and services for their customers and make a profit by doing it, but that they also have a responsibility to advance social agendas that make the world a better place in the view of those business leaders. I'm not giving you a critical perspective there. I'm just giving you a descriptive account. People on all sides of this debate can agree that's what stakeholder capitalism represents. Okay. Now, how is the everyday citizen subsidizing this agenda without even knowing it, right? Their 401k accounts, their retirement accounts, they end up managed by investment managers like BlackRock, for example, that then take the money and aggregate the money of those everyday citizens through their pension funds, through their 401k accounts, And what they do is they then buy shares in America's companies. They don't charge very much to those investment clients. I mean, these are very low fee investment products. So that's the good news. Like social media companies made their products available for free. That was the good news. Well, there's the other side of the trade. And the darker side of the trade here is that the invisible cost was that they also got to represent the voices of those shareholders to corporate America. So, so let's say you own the S&P 500 index fund, okay? Those, that's 500 of the largest companies in the United States. You can have your money invested with BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street or whoever else provides you that index fund. The good news is you get exposure to the stock market for a very low cost. And, and that tends to be a good part of a portfolio to have exposure to the stock market. That's, that's part of a well-rounded portfolio for, for many Americans. Well, the bad news is the person who shows up as the shareholder of those companies gets to tell those companies how to behave. And they actually say, we're the boss. We're the shareholders. You're the CEO. We're just working for us. Here's what we're going to demand. We'll give you a specific, a couple of specific examples. Earlier this year, those three, those three large shareholders took Apple. It's, I think, the largest company in the world. Go, changes by the day. One of the largest companies in the world, if not the largest company in the world. And what they told Apple was that we as the shareholders mandate that you conduct a racial equity audit conducted by a third party, taking a look at group outcomes, including but not limited to pay for representation on axes of race, gender, and other forms of group identity. Apple's management team 
recommended against voting in favor of that shareholder proposal. They said, look, we run the company. And, and by the way, this is- This, this is, is Apple, this is the, yeah, this isn't- Okay, this isn't, yeah. this isn't the, uh, the, the Center for Christian Virtue. <laughs> right, exactly, right? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is Apple, you know, nine figure sum donated to Black Lives Matter, whatever it was right. in the wake of 2020. But they're saying that, look, it's gonna be a waste of money. It's costly. We're already progressive enough. This isn't going to help our company deliver better iPhones. It may impede that mission. We're, we're against this proposal. And 50% of their shareholders using the investment accounts of every America, everyday American says, no, you are gonna adopt that. And they pass the shareholder resolution. And now other management teams across the country, if the largest company in the world and management team got overruled, well, guess what? Companies across the country are now preemptively adopting the same racial equity audits without even a shareholder vote required to do it. I'll give you another one. Exxon, the largest oil company in the country. I think it might be the largest, one of the largest oil companies in the world, of course, American company. Last year had a business plan to increase oil production 25% over five years, 2020 to 2025. That was its prior business plan. Well, there was a shareholder proposal to nominate new directors to Exxon's board to adapt its climate change strategy. Now, once they voted these new directors on and BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard all voted for these new directors to join the board of Exxon, what did Exxon do? They slashed their oil production targets to reduce them 20% from those prior forecasts. No doubt, in my opinion, that Exxon is a less successful company today as a consequence. We have an energy shortage in this country. Oil prices are high. They would be making more money. But also consumers are paying higher prices at the pump as a consequence. This is a problem that most Americans don't know that when they're paying four or $5 gas with one hand, it's their own 401k accounts and retirement accounts and savings accounts and brokerage accounts that are subsidizing the very agenda that causes companies to behave in a way that gives them $5 gas and also to be less successful companies as a consequence. And, and I'm gonna give you by way of example, the international dimension of this, which is, which is really the, the, the darkest side of the story is that when Exxon drops those projects, guess who's poised to pick them up? Mm -hmm. None other than the likes of PetroChina. Yeah. And then you ask yourself, who ends up being among the top shareholders of PetroChina? It is none other than BlackRock itself, which owns nearly 6% of PetroChina, but doesn't make the demands of PetroChina that they do of Exxon. That's a conflict of interest. And guess what, you wanna talk about Apple then? The Apple does its racial equity audit proposal by shareholder mandate here in the United States without saying a word about what's happening to a million religious the minorities, the Uyghurs, in the Xinjiang province of China where Apple sources the upstream parts to ultimately make its iPhones among other things. So this is the geopolitical dimension of this where this weakens the United States at our core while implicitly strengthening our geopolitical foes abroad because it gets it undercutting the greatest moral strength of the United States, the greatest geopolitical strength of the United States. That's not our nuclear arsenal. It is our standing, our moral standing on the global stage. And by relentlessly criticizing the United States for racial injustice or contributing to climate change, but without saying a peep about the actual behaviors and true atrocities in places like China, global corporations then end up contributing to this false moral equivalence between the US and China, which I think is, is probably the defining threat that we face geopolitically over the next 10 years. It's not just a military threat. It's a threat of eroding our credibility and our standing to be able 
to stand for our values without apology on the global stage. So, so when I say it's everywhere, I really mean the effects of it are everywhere from our economy to our culture, to our geopolitics, to eventually our ability to even stand up on the global stage against countries like China. And that's why I think it's, it, you know, I don't mean to be, I don't, again, mean to be, um, you know, overly dramatic about this, but I think, I think if there's a third world war, I think that this toxic merger of politics and business in Western democracies and the way in which they have been deputized by foreign actors like China, that will have played an important role in leading us to the doorstep of that third world war if we don't address it. And what I appreciate what what you just said there is you have this collision of all types of issues from racism and LGBT issues and we're seeing right now on the abortion issue, but also uh, environmental issues and uh, privacy issues, all, the, all these things kind of colliding all under under one, one banner here. I, I just have to ask, I know for a lot of folks who uh, are listening and have their own, they have their own investment accounts, things like this, how is this legal, right? How is it legal for a company to say, I'm actually gonna not go out of my way to maximize profits for my investors, and instead I'm going to, you know, do some virtue signaling or, or something that actually, like you were saying with Apple, you know, their, their management board is actually saying, hey, this is, is not only unnecessary, it could potentially weaken our ability to deliver great iPhones and, and do the things that people are investing in us on. What, what's, the, what's the legal perspective? How do they get away well, with that? Well, I don't think it's legal. I think we're going to see legal action taken across the country, hopefully by some brave state attorneys general. I think this is a good case for the states to pick up because it's a lot of state pension fund money that's that's used to advance these agendas in ways that actual pension fund plan participants don't disagree with, don't, don't agree with. But here's the, here's the thing. The old dogma from the 1980s used to say that the CEO owes the fiduciary duty to the shareholders, and, and no doubt that's right. But that kind of misses the point by half in terms of what's going on here. Because what they what the other side has done is they've subverted that logic, and they said, yeah, you guys said all along that you said the, the fiduciary duty is to the shareholders and the CEO owes a duty to the shareholders. Well, guess what? We are the shareholders yeah. and we're telling you that you got to behave this way or else we're going to dock your pay or else we're going to fire you as CEO or else we're going to replace your board or else we're going to force this shareholder resolution down your throats. And, and so the real problem is, is, is upstream today. It's that the people who claim to be the shareholders are not the actual shareholders, the actual owners of capital. The owners of capital are the everyday citizens who have a different idea of what they want to tell companies to do. And that's the gap that no one has yet addressed. And I think that legal action can in part get there, but it doesn't solve the problem if there aren't substantive other alternatives, Mm. which is a big part of what led me to found Strive. There literally was not another mainstream alternative. And, And to me, that felt like a bigger gap than any politician could actually solve through lawmaking. A lot of these problems originate in the market and in our culture, then you gotta solve them through the market and through our culture, not just through lawmaking. And that's, that was a big part of what led me on this path rather than you know, the path of electoral politics or something like that. Yeah. You know, it seems like nobody really cares about this stuff as long as the agenda is their agenda, right? I'm talking about the average person, but who, who picks, like the next woke agenda, who picks that and why? It's a good question. I mean, some of it seems organic. I think it's a lot more astroturfy than organic. Uh, you know, the cynical answer to that question is Larry Fink picks it. Larry he's, the C- Fink. he's the CEO of BlackRock. He 
oversees a firm that manages around $10 trillion. It's about half the U.S. GDP under the watch of one firm. The alumni from BlackRock staffed the federal government, the administration from the White House Council of Economic Advisors to officials in the Treasury Department, et cetera, who then in turn give them back the COVID-19 stimulus packages to run through their firm and charge a handsome fee for it. But, you know, I think that the largest shareholders in America are among those who kind of decide. If Larry Fink decides that companies need to pursue a particular agenda to fight climate change, then companies are going to adopt that particular agenda to fight climate change. If Larry Fink decides that we need a new boardroom initiative to take a quota system into account to be able to achieve racial equity or whatever the agenda might be, that's exactly what those companies are going to do. And I think the problem is that when we live in a moment where a guy like Larry Fink behaves like a king, but forgets that he is a servant, it's time to fire the servant and ultimately hire a servant that serves the real kings who are citizens in a democracy. We don't live in a monarchy in this country. We, we, I thought, last time I checked, I thought we, we settled that question back in 1776, July 4th being right around the corner, a good time to remind ourselves of the fact that we chose to live in a society where the people decide how to settle the questions of what constitutes the common good not a monarch, be that a British-style monarch from 1775, be it a modern monarch on American soil decided from the, from the glass-cornered office of BlackRock on Park Avenue in Manhattan. And I think that that's, that's the cynical answer, but I think the real answer as well to, to who, who are the kinds of people, at least, that decide the answers to these questions. So, so that's the who, but Why? Right. Yeah, why? So, so why? It's a great question. Do, do, do I even think they really even care. even care? I don't think they really do. Right. Some of them do. Most of them don't. I think most of them are driven by the cynical arranged marriage with what used to be the biggest threat to their power structure. Which? Which was, you know, back in 2008, that was Occupy Wall Street. Okay. Right. So, so if, you, if you're Larry Fink, if you're Wall Street back in 2008, Occupy Wall Street is pretty inconvenient. Okay. <laughs> that, that's Occupy Wall Street's docking on your doorstep. That's a problem. But the new woke stuff, it's actually pretty easy, right? You know, you applaud you know, the, the racial justice agenda, diversity and inclusion, put some token minorities on your boards, fly in a private jet to Davos, and then you muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change. It's pretty good work if you can get it. We'll talk about systemic racism as long as you don't talk about Leave systemic financial risk. Right. Leave exactly. That's how it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and so so they, they realize, look, these these conservatives over here, they're not they're not really gonna bother us one way or another. They 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 keep memorizing slogans that said the market can do no wrong. Well, we're the free market. Well, the other guys could be a problem. Let's advance their agenda and dupe both sides into submission. And so that was the incentive is, is to effectively hold the old left at bay by en engaging in this invisible trade to say that we'll advance your agendas if you leave our power intact and we'll use our power or at least lend it to you to be able to advance your ends. That was, that was the, the mutual prostitution that led to the birth of this new movement. And they're, they're just okay then with, because then you, I mean, you mentioned a few actors there that do have genuine nefarious and, and I should say explicit worldviews beyond yeah. just maximizing profit, like, like the CCP. Like the CCP, exactly. Um, and, and so do they just not view CCP as the, the, the threat as it is, or they're just so desperate to get into China to, they don't, to maximize they profits? Don't view, they don't have a view on whether the CCP is a threat or not. The CCP could be an ally if they're a gatekeeper to the largest growth opportunity, right? Yeah. So, so BlackRock gained a domestic license in China to build an asset management subsidiary there. I believe they were the first foreign owner 
of a domestic asset manager in China. They call it a big growth opportunity. I think it probably is a big growth opportunity for them. But that doesn't come for free. China understands how you play this game. You don't give that stuff away for free. You use Western capitalism's Achilles heel, greed, as a tool to sow the seeds for its own undoing. That's how the Chinese see this, right? So, so these guys will dance to whatever tune we want them to dance to as long as we, shuff, as long as we flash some green pieces of paper before their eyes. And that's what they do. So they say, hey, listen, BlackRock, we're not going to give you that for free. We effectively expect you to behave in the manner that we demand, including in the United States. I personally think that's what accounts for BlackRock advocating on behalf of Chinese companies to argue for lower disclosure standards for Chinese companies that want to list in the United States than U.S. companies. Even as they tout their views on governance here at home, they don't say a word about that. They vote in favor of shareholder proposals that require companies in Hong Kong to give transparent information back to the CCP. And the CCP certainly isn't going to stand for emissions caps on PetroChina. If BlackRock's flexing their muscle, they'll say, get the heck out of here. And you don't have your asset management license here anymore. Yeah. And, and so, so that's the asymmetry that, you know, in some ways, China calling our bluff. Because we thought we could export Big Macs and Happy Meals through global capitalism, the promise of democratic capitalism, and somehow reform places like China. They were laughing the whole nine yards. What they realized was that they could play that game in reverse and send back Disney movies and Nike sneakers and BlackRock funds to be able to actually criticize the United States without saying a peep about China, creating that false moral equivalence we were talking about earlier yeah. to China's geopolitical advantage, weakening the United States. It's like the Trojan War, right? Right? Troy would have never defeated, Troy would have never, won, would have been defeated by Greece, okay? on its own terms. They had, the, they had the walls. Militarily, it wasn't going to happen. Right. But what they realized, Greece realized, was that they could defeat Troy by using the Trojan horse, give them the gift they could not resist, and then burn them from within. Global capitalism, that's effectively the Trojan horse of our time, where Chinese company, China, China, the Chinese government has deputized multinational companies to be able to become the Trojan horses that undermine the United States from within. And I'm sorry to say we're watching it happen in plain yeah. sight. Yeah. So, Vivek, I, I mean, honestly, man, we could dive into, there's so many places I want to go with here, but I, I want to dive, since we're winding down here, I want to dive into the solution, right? And I think for a lot of folks in the Christian world right now, when we've seen companies start going down a path that we disagree with, the, the, the playbook has been, for lack of a better phrase, boycott, mm-hmm. right? It's been divest, divest, you know, yeah. boycott, you know, and, and, you know, and there's been there's been some examples in the past where that's that's worked. You know, um, you know, honestly, this organization was founded by moms in the 1980s who went into Kroger's and found pornograph- pornographic magazine and says, "Hey, if you don't take this down, we're going to protest you." And it worked. They got porn out of Kroger. It, it, I mean, it was great. But you know, I remember this was about five years ago uh, when uh, Target introduced their you know their transgender bathroom policies. And there was the big outcry, and there was a real boycott called for. And you actually saw Target's stock price go down, and folks were saying, hey, look, Target has felt a pinch from this, and Target doubled down. Mm-hmm. They, they Absolutely. just, they, and so Absolutely. it seems like that strategy wasn't working. Yes. Yeah, so, and so, so look, you have a different strategy yeah, now. Yeah, I think, I think that strategy, look, I, I, it's well-intentioned, right? Yeah. And, I, and I think that we should be having a wide-spanning conversation that encompasses multiple approaches to see how do we drive change for the better. But but having had the benefit of having thought about this for the last couple of years, whatever experience I can 
shed, you know, light on here. My own view is maybe, maybe as a customer that approach works. And even then we can debate it. It, it almost definitely doesn't work as a shareholder. Because the reason is the capital is so deep in the BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard and Invesco and Neuberger Bergman Reserves. I mean, these are the Goldman Sachs, et cetera, you go down the list, that saying you're not going to own that stock, that's not going to make a difference. All that does is it concentrates the shareholder voice and the voting power that the remaining shareholders even have over those companies. And I'm sorry that we don't have choice in the marketplace where if Apple decides to bend the knee to a left-wing orthodoxy, you don't have a different place really to buy your iPhone from. Maybe you can go to Samsung. Samsung does the same ideology. And then, and then, and then you're, you're left holding the back. And so I, th- I actually prefer engagement over divestment as the way to drive that change. And you know what? Some of these companies in the meantime might be, many of them are, perfectly profitable companies that you don't want to inflict financial harm to your portfolio to say, I don't want to own that company, even if it's behaving in a way that doesn't align with my values. Instead, what you want to say is, I actually want to make sure that my voice is represented as a shareholder. And and so the problem today is that what these asset managers are doing is that they're using the money of those everyday citizens to represent a voice that those citizens disagree with. And I think with this approach to engagement, we actually have the winning hand where the ultimate owners of capital, the people who actually work hard, save their money, have families, the people who actually raise their kids to be able to succeed in the American economy, they happen to be the people who share the very perspectives that I think we in this room share, but whose views just aren't being represented today. So if we're able to solve that mismatch, what what I call a fiduciary gap between the agents and the principal, between the owner of capital and the party who invests on behalf of the owners of capital. If we're able to close that gap, I think that actually takes care of a lot of the problem downstream. And that's where I think we need to disproportionately focus our energy. That's where I focused my energy. So how are you doing that? Last question here is we're, we're running out of time, but how are you doing that with Strive? To, to share what Strive is and how this strategy is different than, and honestly, as I've been looking at this issue for the last several years, I've not seen anyone do what you're talking about doing on the level that you're talking about doing it. Well, I appreciate that. So look, I, I'll be able to say more about it in the, in, you know, in the starting the third quarter of the year, which is right around the corner. But, you know, there's, you know, a bunch of regulatory, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I, we'll, we'll, I'll be saying more about it here. And I don't, you know, we could go on for hours about it for that matter. But the long story short is Strive is a new asset management firm that has a really simple mission. Restore the voice of the everyday citizen in the American economy by mandating companies to focus exclusively on delivering excellent products and services to their customers over any political or social agenda, period. And the way we do that is really similar to the way the existing asset managers do it by launching investment products, investment products or funds. And what we said is our our first investment product is going to launch in the third quarter of this year. And that's just the beginning of what comes thereafter. And, And if we do our job right, I hope this is the beginning of of a new movement in capital markets, in corporate America, and in our culture across our country that ultimately restores the essence of true capitalism and true democracy by separating them from one another. And that's what motivates me. And I, you know, stay tuned for the, for in the coming months and, and hopefully 
hopefully this will be the beginning of, of the tidal wave that we actually need in our country. That's amazing. I, I do just, uh, this is actually the last question. How many CEOs or C-suite folks have said thank you for doing this? Because they're Quietly so behind closed doors, a lot of them. Yeah. Then I look at their, I look at their public statements though, and they're <laughs> mismatched with what I hear privately. And, and yeah. you know, it's a good thought to close on. I mean, this is part of why I even wrote the book is you take that gap between what people are willing to say behind closed doors and what people are willing to say in public it's as wide of a gap as I can remember in my lifetime. Yeah. I hope what we do closes that gap and that gets us closer to truth. Whether or not you agree with me or you or the other guy, at least we're able to restore the spaces where we can have those conversations in the open. That's true American progress. Can you have today. those conversations with legislators as well? Or? Right. <laughs> That's what we, we <laughs> That's see the, the topic for the same day. thing, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You see that across the... Across the this board, but awesome. well, Vivek Ramaswamy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for Woke Inc. Thank you for, we'll be looking at, when does Nation of Victims come out? Comes out in mid-September. Mid-September, be on the lookout for that. Obviously, uh, check out Strive, and Vivek's a great follow on Twitter. Uh, I know if you're a big Twitter fan like David is, uh, you're, you'll, you'll be checking that out. But grateful for you joining us here on The Narrative. We'll be back next week. Next week.